Welcome to The Growing Band Director, the podcast that dives into topics applying to all of us band directors. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Together, we discuss many aspects of the school band program, including how to build your concert, jazz, and marching programs, as well as everything else we do as band directors. More importantly, we'll discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, you rot. Let's get started. Hey everybody, I was very, very, very honored to sit down with not only Jeff, but Jim Battagliano, um, two just sort of icons of, of visual design and marching band and drum corps and winter guard uh, in the Northeast over the last 50 years. And, you know, together they have about a century of experience. And it was a really amazing uh, talk that I can't wait to bring you here in a second. Um, I just wanted to jump on real quick before I played you that that uh, recording, just to, you know, apologize a little bit for the audio that we were having. Um, it was sort of one of those days where internet was kind of all over the place. And um, there was, there was, I believe, some audio lag um, in the recording that was made. Um, I think it was probably on my end, but... Uh, that's sort of it, and I just wanted to apologize for that, and we're working hard to fix that stuff for the future. So on to the episode. I hope you guys uh, learn a lot and have a great time. See you later. Well, welcome back, and happy summertime. Welcome back to The Growing Band Director, everybody. Um, we are very pleased to have a podcast um, today about the truths of general effect visual adjudication in marching band, and our guest is Jim Battagliano. Um, Jim has uh, a very long and storied career of 43 years um, as a, a, a visual judge and teacher. Um, Jim served as president of Massachusetts Judges Association from 2006 to 2019, currently sits on the board of directors as past president and director of communications. He has also served on the WGI board of director, directors um, and was inducted into the Massachusetts Drum Corps Music Educator Hall of Fame in 2013. He's also a current judge uh, in many circuits in the area. So we're very pleased to have, have him. Jim, how are you this morning? Doing well, thank you. Thanks very, for having me. Very good. And between you and Jeff, you guys have almost a century of, ed, of, of teaching experience in this realm. So I, I bow to both of you. Jeff, how's your summer going? Oh, it's great. It's, uh, I just finished babysitting two of my grandsons for a week and then a week before that babysitting their dog. So it's been a interesting summer so far. That's awesome. So um, Jim, I'm a band director and I come from a, I play the trumpet. I know how to march a dot and I know how to learn the music on the page. Yet general effect seems to be a category that is much different from that. So I think a lot of band directors are like me and we have a harder time understanding what general effect is, which is why we have this whole podcast. So I hope a lot of young band directors are going to learn from you guys. So Jim, could you give us a little bit more introduction to you and uh, your experience as an educator and an an adjudicator? Sure. Um, um, As Kyle mentioned, um, I did start teaching in 1979. I was 19 at the time. Um, And my mentor who actually got me into teaching um, got me that first gig um, doing an uh, an indoor winter guard, believe it or not. Um, I was a percussionist when I uh, was marching myself. So it was somewhat new to me, although I always had the interest in twirling the rifle. So um, she got me very into the whole visual um, part of um, what we do uh, as an activity. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. So I mean, I've been teaching ever since. Um, I've not stopped. I'm still teaching 
to this day. Um, so many, many years of experience teaching both drum corps, um, marching band, uh, winter guard, indoor percussion. Um, I've done it all and it, from many different aspects. I've um, designed many, many shows. Um, I've done teching um, at a, multiple levels. Um, yeah, so a lot of experience, a lot of different experience in the visual arena. So, um, and I've been judging since 1988. Um, Georgia Liriero and Debbie Torsha, who are two very prominent, were, uh, George used to be the president of Massachusetts Judges Association and Debbie prominent members uh, of the association and very well-known judges got me very interested in doing the judging part of this. And so I've been doing it since 88. And I've judged, you know, locally for all the circuits and I've judged for DCA, DCI, WGI. So ton of experience there as well. It's been incredible, an incredible ride. <laughs> well, I think that as we are uh, today, I, from my experiences for watching people design shows, one of the biggest problems for people or thing that creates confusion is what is general effect? So Jim, could you give us your definition of what general effect is? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's, um, people have very different views of what general effect are, depending on the world you come from. As Kyle mentioned, you know, a person who is a musician um, learns the, 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 the nuts and bolts of the performance. You don't really have a full enough understanding of what really goes into the, the concept of general effect. To me, general effect is the blend of everything that is presented in a program um, and presented in a way that becomes effective and entertaining for everybody that's watching. So there's so much that goes into that, but in a sort of general description of what I think general effect is, that's how I describe it. Well, thank you. So what I've experienced is that, you know, you get into a critique and the first thing, the band director or the staff comes up to the general effect judge and says, well, you know, this, 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 and this, why aren't we getting an effect? How would you address that? I would talk to them about how the pieces of the production were put together um, and why something that they might think is a generating an effect may not be translating up to the to, uh, to both the audience and to the people that have to adjudicate. So when you think about effect, you know, not only do you have to think about moments in time as effects, you have to think about how all of those moments tie together to create an sort of overall effective impact in the show. You know, you can have isolated moments in time that may generate emotion or whatever, or, you know, create uh, a reaction from the audience or from the adjudicator. But if the pieces aren't tied together well, and there are moments in between where we lose our attention as viewers or listeners, um, you know, that is where effect can break down. So you've got to be really understanding of how the pieces of the program tie together because we're, 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 we're talking about effect for an entire program. We're not looking at effect in moments. We, we do look at effect in moments because they're all tied together very successfully. So I think that's one way I would approach it. Yeah, I think the, the the lapses are what creates the problem between one moment to the next moment. Have you ever run into the situation where somebody walks up to you in your critique and says, the kids have practiced hard all work. We've done a great job all week. Why aren't we getting credit for it? 
you know, again, it really, listen, if somebody comes to, if, some, if we see a performance in one week and then you do see performance improvement, we're going to note that. There's no question about that because the caption is for two very specific categories. It's got a repertoire caption and a performance caption, and we have to recognize that. So, but the problems probably still exist in terms of how the, the effect of the program has been designed over time. And so now, yes, performance can increase those moments that we just talked about and make those a little bit stronger. But are all of your moments tied together in a way that create this really effective program from beginning to end? So, yes, we would recognize performance improvements without a doubt, but that does not necessarily mean, I mean, it can impact repertoire. If you still have issues with how you coordinate your program and how you pick program, we may still have those same comments a week later. Um, you were mentioning lapses in between moments. I remember a great friend who passed away a number of years ago, Al Yezwe. When I was a young band director, he told me about what he called the 22nd rule, you know, about how every 15 to 20 seconds, something should happen that catches the eye of, of people. And that can be musically or visually, but can you expound a little bit upon that? Cause I'm sure there's some people who have never heard that before. Yeah, that's, that gets a little more complex though, but it really depends on what your musical choices are. Um, because you can have, you can have many different flavors within a, within a piece that you've chosen. So you may have something that's very aggressive and then moves into something that really has a little bit more subdued and mellow. So, you know, that's one way of creating variety in your effects, which I think is very important. But what you want to be very careful about is, it, I think a lot of people have it problems when you go from exciting, energetic moments, which I think people can relate to more easily than those that are more subdued and probably, you know, a little more ethereal, things that require a little bit more fun. Those are the moments that have to be very carefully planned when you piece those pieces together. So you want to make sure that when you go from something that generated excitement and energy from an audience and judging perspective to something that's going to bring us down, that we actually feel that when it happens. You don't want to lose us when that happens, because sometimes what happens is you make change, the atmosphere changes and the, or the, the tone or the quality of the sound changes and you don't react to it because we're not getting that sense of emotion coming from the performers anymore. Or it sometimes can be how the repertoire was built. The piece constructed in a way that it's going to continue to engage the audience and is it going to continue to engage uh, the indicator in a way that makes it feel like it's all been tied together properly. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, I would say if you're going to have levels, in, and I like, I like your example that you gave from, um, from Al Yezaway, I mean, a very dear friend of mine and somebody I really respected. Um, that it's a, good, it's a good way of looking at it. You always want to make sure that you're engaging the audience as much as you possibly can throughout the show. Um, and so tying those moments together whenever there is a change in atmosphere, is really key to you know, success in terms of pacing and coordination, which are very key elements of effect, so. I do run into this, I'll present it. So you're in critique and visual designers talking to you and they're talking about all these different effects that are going on in a certain part of the piece, but they never talk about what the music is doing while these visual effects are going on. So the coordination of the music 
so the visual doesn't occur. And a lot of times we have a disconnect in critiques because our visual designers have really not taken into consideration the full depth of what the music is creating as an opportunity for effect. Could you talk about that for a second? Sure. That's an excellent point, Jeff. And one thing you always have to remember, the music always comes first. <laughs> you know, it, it's the music that drives the so the visual designer is only reacting to the music that has been presented to them. So when you're putting your program together and you're thinking about what your repertoire is going to be over time in a program, you've got to be sure that you're presenting the designer, the rest of the design team with material that is going to um, provide opportunities for success. So if you're, you know, if you have this very complex um, repertoire and the visual team hasn't been involved in sort of the discussions around how it's being built and all of that, they can interpret sometimes how they uh, react to that. So, you know, having a really strong team, number one, to react to the music, which again, I'll say it again, the music drives everything. That's the backbone. Um, you've got to make sure that the team is well-coordinated and understands what your original intent was when you thought about that repertoire so that when they design the show from a visual perspective, they are in line with what your original uh, intentions were. That usually works, <laughs> you know, and unless, unless you've chosen a repertoire that just doesn't really generate a lot of um, emotion or you know, those, that's a, certainly a key factor. <laughs> Have you found that when you're in critique, Stressful moments occur when you can obviously see that there hasn't been a good line of communication between the visual team and the music team, and there, there's conflicts. And like the general effect music judge is saying, well, your music's very effective, but the visuals are coordinating. And you're the visual judge saying, your visuals are nice, but they don't coordinate to what the music's doing. Right. Is, is that something you've run into? I have. Um, I would say... I've run into more situations where it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Jeff, where people would react to an effect, but only a part of the effect. So maybe an interesting visual moment, or maybe it was an interesting musical moment, you know what I mean? But the two did not coordinate well. So, you know, it all goes back to, again, really good planning. And I, I, I always talk to staffs about how they need to be coordinated as a team to make the project successful. I mean, you can't, I don't think there's any way that you can just send a visual person off on their own and say, here's the score, here's a recording of audio, now go ahead and create without having a conversation as a team um, to decide, you know, how you want to lay things out and how everything should be interpreted, so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jeff. So, um, and and Jim, can you guys talk a little bit about like the nuts and bolts about what that planning might look like? Like Jeff, Jeff I look to you because you and I have planned for a number of years together now. But like, at what what sort of detail do we go into when it comes to planning the shows and those effect moments? And we start like what November, right? We, yeah. We kind of start November, and it's a slow process that go takes us until through the season really, but can you talk about a little bit more about like if there's some teachers here who have never done this amount of planning with their visual staffs before, what do you think is the ideal route to go? Well, in, in my experience, um, actually when, when 
preparing for a fall dance season, we've actually started preparing probably in the February, March, April of the previous year. I mean, we're already thinking about thinking about repertoire at that point. So typically, um, what I have, this has just been my experience in the past with, uh, with one of my long-term groups that I worked with, um, and Mr. Gesway, as a matter of fact. Um, we would meet early on with those um, music heads who were thinking about what the repertoire was going to look like. And they often they would uh, ask for, you know, suggestions as well. We would kind of pool our ideas together about thoughts that we had for music. And, you know, visual people have can make good choices musically, too. Mm-hmm. So we can't forget that. But, you know, we always uh, go back to our musical leaders who then sit us all down and we have a conversation about why those choices were made, what were they envisioning when they thought about making those choices, and what kinds of things were they thinking from a design perspective they wanted to see brought to life. So then we can start having some discussions about, yeah, well, yes, that would be great. Let's maybe chat about this. So it, it was a number of team meetings between, and it's not, you don't have to have your whole staff involved in this. It really has to be the designers doing this. And then the designers can communicate this down to the people who do technician work and that sort of thing. But you're going to start having a lot of conversations back and forth about how the show is going to lay out over time. And you would put together sort of like a storyboard where we would look at each particular piece of the show and decide we're going to, this is going to visual impact of this particular section. It's going to tie together to this next piece in this way. We're going to use this prop to make that happen, or we're going to change this color, or we're going to add this element. I mean, there's so many different ways you can approach it, but the key point being that you want to work your way with the entire design team, both music and visual and percussion, of course, as well, to storyboard the show beginning to end and then everybody has to be in agreement that this is how we want to take. You know, if you're not in agreement, you need to go back to the drawing board. That's that's all there is to it because it's never going to be successful unless all of you designers are on board. Um, and that's yeah. that's my experience. Yeah, I, I agree 100. So so here we come to that age-old question that happens every effect critique. Okay, music's coordinated well with the visual and everything, and then we take the guard component. And the guard component is incorporated into the drill well, but sections of colors, um, appropriate equipment, um, use of the triad, things of that nature are less than the best. How do you address that in a general effect caption? Yeah, I think. Um... You know, and I've had a lot of experience with this, and I've worked with multiple levels of, business. you know, new folks coming in who are really energetic, you know, just off the performance arena, and they think they're going to conquer the world. And then you've got those that are, you know, a little bit more experienced because they've worked with some designers or they've had some chance to design on their own, and they're they are beginning to understand how a show is put together as a team. And then you've got your very experienced designers who are completely in line with the entire team and are not afraid to hear commentary, even from a music person. If a music person talks to me and says, I would love to see Ags doing this during this section, that's something that the color guard person should be thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly there was a vision in that person's head about what they were expecting. 
to see there. So that's where those conversations take place. And it's hard because newer guard staff don't like to hear their work being challenged. Um, and so they need to be brought into the picture, I think, soon enough so that they, and they need to, it needs to be explained to them that this is a team effort, but design has to agree on everything before we decide we're gonna move forward. So bring your ideas to the table and then let us discuss whether or not they're appropriate for the, for the section that we're working on. So that, that's tough, you know? Yeah. And again, this is, that is not a diss on new instructors because they are so energetic and so willing to, you know, to work. But there is some ego involved at times as, you know, they feel as though their work is being challenged. And so you, you just have to get them out of the mold. Well, I think two things I've learned is that the longer you do it, the more you realize what you don't know. And, and the more you need to work at trying to understand all the new nuances that are coming out and incorporating them appropriately, rather than saying, you know, everything, you know, I, I think, yeah, as time goes on, you just realize, yeah, that, that didn't work. We got to be honest about it. Say that, that was a great idea on paper, but once we left the paper, it stopped working real fast. And, and you got to be willing to accept criticism and not take it as, a personal front, but just, yeah, good try, but maybe that's not the right try. So you know, another, another interesting approach though, is especially for color guard people, and we talked about storyboard as a team, what a, another effective thing to do for the color guard team is for them to storyboard their own show and have that ready when you start having team discussions. It makes it so much easier to really then talk about whether or not some of the choices they've made are was envisioned originally yeah you know so because you might find something coming from a color guard person that might change your perspective as a you know a music director or a percussion director quite often quite often i agree yeah, i've seen that happen I, I remember i can give you a great example when i was teaching um salem new hampshire they uh they had a massive drum line one year massive battery. and so and they were quite good in my opinion and so we were trying to figure out what to do with this really what we thought was an excellent percussion that was written for them. And the percussion staff had a very specific vision of what that was. And so I went back with the color guard team and um, as, as the visual designer, and we talked about what we thought would work there. And it was a completely, it was a total one from what the rest of the design team was thinking. But when they saw it presented and we talked about it as a team, that's because they felt that was a better choice. So you, you, there's some play back and forth here that you can work with in your design teams that you, know, you can support one another that way, so. Yeah, I agree. So you and I both were very intensely schooled by DCA in a change in conceptual judging in general effect. And that was the use of the word entertainment. And I think as we look at the progression of DCA over COVID aside, but over the time, we've seen that entertainment become a very important part of what they're doing as well as DCA. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes our band director friends get a little too ethereal and forget that the audience is there because they want to be entertained. How do you feel about entertainment as it pertains to the general effect caption? I think it's very important. Um, depends on the sheet that you're working as a judge, but it is very, very important. I mean, I always look at it this way. 
when I think about what we're doing out there and the people that are sitting there watching it, I always think that they have paid money to come in and watch a performance. So think about going to any paid performance, whether it's the theater or the, a concert, whatever. You're paying money because you want to be entertained. So you have to take that into consideration. So when you get, if you start thinking about doing, like Jeff mentioned, very ethereal shows, those can be very entertaining, but you have to be extremely intelligent about how you approach those. And you've got to make sure that you're taking the people who are sitting there watching it on a ride as they uh, watch the show. You know, it can't just all of a sudden very sort of out there, ethereal feel to the program. And you just, and people are just like, what is happening here? You know, you're not connecting in a way that is bringing any sort of emotion. So entertainment can have very, very um, components. <laughs> it can be exciting. It can be energetic. It can be sad. It can be um, mellow. It could be jazzy. There's so many different feelings that you could to, to really display entertainment quality. So keep that in mind. It's very important. I think if you engage the audience, what choices are, you are entertaining them. Yep, I, I agree. So here's the thing that I think we both have run into. Visual ensembles versus general effect. Could you discuss no the comparison between the two? Because I think that's the biggest question mark in some of our colleagues' minds as to how to approach those captains and those judges. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Jeff, and it, it's, it's the age-old issue that we've had as judges. Now, I judge both captions. I do judge defense and I do judge ensemble, and you have to, I have to think before I sit down and do a show, okay, I'm on ensemble today. I've got to completely change my mindset on how I'm going to approach this caption, because there are some similarities between the two, especially in the performance and excellence piece of it, some similarities, but the main thing to think about is effect reactionary caption. The people that are adjudicating effect are reacting to your program. The people that are judging ensemble are analyzing your program because their job is to look at the overall design of the show and to make sure that the design is being displayed with really good design quality. Mm -hmm. As repertoire, you'll get pieces of the show are put together and how they impact the audience. Does that make sense? So really, I, I always separate out the caption that ensemble, I analyze the show. I'm, I'm looking at the nuts and bolts of the show. In fact, I'm reacting to it. I'm it come to me and I'm letting it, I'm, I'm reacting to it based on how it impacts me from, uh, <laughs> from an entertainment perspective or from, you know, uh, an emotional standpoint. I mean, so I think that's a really good way to kind of separate out what those two captions are really about. And then when you get to the excellence piece of ensemble, excellence in ensemble gets into a little bit nitty gritty of the training, the skills, um, you know, the nuts and bolts of getting the performers to be where they are from an excellence perspective. Whereas in effect, performance is how do the performers react to the material that they are presenting? Are they displaying emotion? Are they, if, they're, if they have an acting role in the show, are they really displaying good acting quality? Um, if they are supposed to be 
you know, changing the atmosphere on the field by either, you know, relaxing a little bit more or being more tense or whatever? Are they, are they displaying that? You know, and it, it is, there is some technique involved as well in making those qualities happen, but it's more about how we act to the, how the performers are delivering their show. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I, I think it makes 100% sense to me. How about you, Carl? Does that? So if we take this, the, the, the thing that I know you've experienced, person walks into critique, well, we had a variety of cl climaxes all over the place, all different types, all different stagings. Why in a repertoire effectiveness aren't we getting as much credit as Joe Blow or whomever, the other group? How would you do My immediate reaction to that would probably, if I had to guess what the issue was in a situation like that, I would say it's probably the pacing of the program. Right. So that comes back yeah. to what we talked about earlier, the lapses. Yes. Right. You can have as many, you know, what we, the ensemble, they call them vertical moments, where you have a moment in time where a design uh, idea um, is presented. And then you have what's called horizontal moments, which is the information that's happening between each one of the vertical moments that you present. So when you think about that from an effect standpoint, that's good pacing. If you have a strong moment that you're presenting, and now you're going to lead us to the next really big effect moment in the show, that piece in between also has to carry effective quality. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just, transition moments cannot just be, you know, pedestrian. They have to have the same level of quality that you put in any other moment in the show. The reaction might be different. You know, you know what I mean? If you present something that's a high energy climax, and then you bring up to the next moment where you're going to have a high energy moment. You still have to have audience connection and some sort of emotional reaction to what's happening in between. And that's the beauty of effect. When it's done really well, the show has that really strong sense of pacing. That is when you're going to have total participation and judge reaction throughout. So I have, I've, Got a question. I, I, I may not pose this exactly right, so please rephrase it whatever way you think is the right way. Many times I'll be standing outside a room before critique, listening to uh, some of my colleagues talk, and they'll say, well, I listen to the tapes, and they're saying, this is just very pedestrian. And they're saying, what's pedestrian? Do you explain to our listeners what pedestrian is? Sure. I think it kind of goes back to what I was just talking about before. I think pedestrian... Uh, it's, I don't think it's meant to be used in the true sense of the word. But, you know, when we think about pedestrian, we think about, you know, people just walking across the street with no real intention. Um, so if you apply that to what we're doing, a pedestrian moment in the show is one of those moments where you've created a design element that just isn't translating. It's just not translating. Or it's, or you've, you've done something that didn't tie two very strong ideas together in an effective way or from an ensemble perspective in a um, logical way. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you've got to be sure that a good example of it would be, let's say you've got a really great moment happening and it's all unfolding really well um, front stage. And then you've got the guard sort of a, you know, framed uh, 
uh, frame design behind them. And now all of a sudden we need it's time to make a change. So we go into transition and the guard just kind of runs to the back and drops their stuff and picks up another flag and then runs back. That is a pedestrian moment. Because every moment of the show, even, even a moment when the guard has to exit the stage to make a color change, it has to be designed into the show. So how you take them to that next moment to make the color change has to include something that coordinates with the winds and the battery as they're doing their magnificent moment up front. <laughs> so some sort of choreography of some sort, um, even going as, as detailed as going down to pick up the next piece of equipment, you know, choreographic in a way that really blends with what the winds and percussion are saying at that time. And then when that introduction of color is there, um, it becomes a true spectacular effect because you then change the atmosphere in the field successfully. Otherwise, it's just all broken up. <clears throat> Excuse me, you've probably lost some of your audience at that point, because they're, all they're doing is watching people run to go pick up flags. But I would give that as a really good example of a pedestrian okay. in the show. So I'm gonna take that pedestrian concept you just made and bring it back to a staff thing. So years ago, I wrote for the group and I took a lot of time to make sure that I assigned the guard people to the equipment I wanted them to be based on what the staff had told me what they wanted. And I worked a nice, gradual integration of leaving the field and coming back on the field and bringing new equipment. So it wasn't like a run to the, the a trash barrel run where you run to the front, get rid of your flag, right. and pick up a new one. And I thought I did a pretty good job. So they get to the first show and they send me back a, a, a judge's tape. So the judge's tape said, what the heck is going on? So I asked them to send me a movie. So I saw a movie and I coordinated it. So the flags were going to come in and then that some were going to come out with weapons and some were going to come out with another piece of equipment. But I'm having people, I got it. So it was sequential and I'm watching all these people cross paths mm. and what it was is, well, we decided we wanted different people on the equipment, so we just changed it and to go to different spots. And I know when I've sat on your side of the table, I've said to our friends that, why did you everybody go, well, the writer wrote it one way and we decided to do it a different way. And we thought it would just work just fine. Have you run into that problem where what you've written maybe for a long distance client comes back as being a, a ball of pasta jewel and uh, not looking exactly the way you intend to be. Yes, I have. Um, I had this experience um, not too long ago with a group that I was writing for in California. Um, well, you know, part of it is, you know, the difficulty in doing long distance writing is you don't know the students as well as you do when you're on site. So I'm taking from the designers and they're telling me who the key individuals are and where they need to be at any specific point in time. So as a designer, it's my job to make sure that I coordinate pieces of the show in a way that makes those decisions in a logical and effective way. But not everybody has the ability to do that. So this goes back to our the beginning of this podcast where we talked about storyboarding and working out all of the details of the show. 
this is why, you know, with Color Guard, it's very important for them to storyboard out the show and bring it to design meetings so that you have those types of conversations ahead of time. You don't want to start writing before you know which players you want where on the, on the stage. Um, that's, I think, Jeff, that's what's happening is, you know, if you don't have those discussions ahead of time, those are the kinds of things that can happen. And the reason I brought this up is because a lot of our colleagues have long distance writers and they have sometimes have long distance guard writers where the guard instructor sends a video of the work they want them taught. The kids watch the video and they're assisted in learning it that way. But I, I think our colleagues need to realize the, uh, the band directors and the staff that if you have a long distance writer, you need to communicate what the problem is and let give the writer a chance to adjust rather than them making adjustments on a fly. Sometimes a hurried adjustment creates more long-term problems in a show than a thoughtful, maybe delayed adjustment that would create a better transition moment and give the, the ensemble, give the kids more credit for what they're doing. Because right. a lot of times I think I find that the problems with a, a group not doing well or the kids not doing well has nothing to do with the kids but it has to do with the writers and the meeting of the minds to get it so it all works together. And uh, so for all our long distance friends out there, you know, everybody's got to do their way based on the availability of writers and, and uh, instructors and stuff, but communication is the key to getting it to work. Now you brought up a point a few minutes ago that I thought was really succinct to the GE caption. You were talking about, the emotions and the kids buying into the show and physically and facially showing their emotional range. So do you find that sometimes you'll get to a show, you'll have kids that can throw five, sixes, catch them like swipe those sabers out of there, tosses with the flag, great flag work, but it's like looking at a blank sheet. And I don't think some of our colleagues recognize that that emotional range that the children I should say the students show to the audience is the connective am i correct or am i wrong about that you are you are and i think it's a it's a typical problem that we see early on in the season because clearly groups are very focused on the technical aspect of what they're doing early on um so you know the, the students are really focusing on skill um and achievement of skills at that point because that's what's really been uh, the main body of work, I think, up to that point. Um, one of the things that um, I've done in the past, um, especially with very successful color guards, um, is you have to build in the piece that talks to emotion and talks to effect as you're training them. Because those are skills too. You know, if you ask somebody to act in a show, you can't just expect them to deliver what you're asking of them without giving them a little bit of training. I mean, there is some technique behind acting too. So, you know, as you're doing your technique program, which we have, you know, as we all know, color guards have very technical um, programs. They teach them how to dance. They teach them how to spin. They teach them how to coordinate those two things together. But they never really get into, you know, and I'm talking more about inexperienced color guard people. The more experienced color guard folks know how to blend all of the training aspects into their, you know, their training programs. So you get out there, if you've worked on, if you're going to do some technical work with them, building some things where they have to act 
and talk to them about what they need to do with their bodies or their faces to bring that acting moment to life. Because it really is, I mean, there are physical skills necessary to make those things happen. So if you build those into your technical program, especially things that you're thinking about for your upcoming program, as soon as you start laying those things out in the fields, they already have a, good, a better understanding of what it is they're supposed to be interpreting at that particular moment in time. They're doing what Jeff said. They're doing very strong technique, moving from dot to dot, twirling in, you know, as well as they've been trained to twirl, but without that strong sense of connection to what's actually happening from a musical perspective. So very, very important thing. I think if you're gonna, if you're gonna build in those character moments in the show, build them into your training program. And also, don't you find that sometimes you'll see groups where the guard is like, Unbelievable. Their emotional projection, their equipment. And then you got the horn players and the, and the uh, drum line. They're just staying in their like blank moments. And sometimes we as musicians tend to forget that we have to teach them, the horn players and the battery and the, the pit, that they have to demonstrate those same emotional characteristics that the guard is showing so that there's a cohesiveness and coordination. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, that goes, that all goes to training. Um, you know, you are working with winds and battery in a training program for, you know, just their skills, you know, lower body skills and, you know, posture and all of that. Again, when you sort of board your show, if there's something that you think you're going to require of the winds and the battery, that's going to take them off center, for instance, if they have to do something that requires movement or maybe some sort of an acting role, build it into one of your technical ex exercises. Yeah. So they just, you know, repetition, we all know, practice makes perfect and repetition, especially when you're doing things like that so that the muscle memory begins to kick in, makes it so much easier when you have to lay it out, you know, as part of the actual design of the show. Yeah. So what do you think are the common, your experience, what have you found to be the common misunderstandings of general effect? It goes back to what you were talking about before, Jeff, that, that lack of information about the ensemble and effect captions. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are always thinking that judges are judging the content and they want to make sure that they're getting all of the elements of the, you know, the demand and the variety. Those are elements of effect for sure. But as I said before, effect is a reactionary caption. We're not analyzing and tearing the show apart like an ensemble judge would do. And I think that's always been the biggest issue. Uh, staffs come in and they combine the, the concepts of those two captions together. And it's hard, you know, you have to go through the whole explanation of that. And, oh yeah. So here's a point that I'm gonna bring up that you and I have dealt with past few years together. And that is the professionalism or manners of people in critique towards the judging community. Could you mm -hmm. speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah, I've, I've had many, a range of different experiences with people. Um, you know, in young days, I had some moments that I wish I could have taken back. Um, you know, I was very passionate and emotional about what I was doing and I wasn't in agreement with what adjudicators were saying to me. and. I delivered that information in a probably a very poor way at that time. And I learned over time 
that when you come in and speak with somebody who is really only trying to make you better, um, the best way to approach it is to have a calm, intelligent conversation with that person about where you can either make improvements or to talk about those things that you're doing wonderfully that you could probably reproduce even more in other moments in your show. So the best approach, in my opinion, is to be prepared when you walk into the room. If you are emotional about, you know, maybe you're not happy with your scoring or a commentary or something, you have to leave that outside of the room. You've got to make sure you make a conscious effort to just leave the emotion out of it. Maybe make some notes as you're listening to your, um, your, re your recap from the judge and have specific points that you want to talk about when you come in. You know, don't come in with some raging emotion and think that you're going to get anything accomplished because you, all you're going to be doing is battling back and forth, you know, someone telling you to calm down or you, there's nothing constructive happening there. So how are you helping to make your group better in that situation? So come prepared, be calm, you know, approach it, approach it intelligently and do everything you can to get the information to help your group to get better. I also think it's really important to have everybody assume that everybody else is doing their best, right? If you're a teacher and you're in there, assume that the adjudicator did their best to help you, you know, also understand they may have seen eight to 20 shows that day already. And you are one of the eight to 20 shows and that the adjudicators should also remember that the staff probably at that time is doing the best they can. Right. And you're right. As young teachers, we always get emotional because we care so much about it. And that sort of measured approach and not trying to think that everybody else is wrong and that your way is the only way. Sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. I think we've all been yeah. there. Jeff, you. I, I will say, I, I've noticed, sorry, Jeff, I noticed over time that the instructors that never learned how to do that well are the instructors that didn't last. Mm -hmm. They got away from the activity. They just, because, you know, they got pushed away, basically. Those that approached it, and, and really wanted to learn more about how to do an effective critique and, you know, how to communicate better between, you know, your staff members and judges. Those have been the most successful staff members I've seen. And those are the people that go on to greatness um, and make wonderful uh, productions. So. And Jeff, you come across very calm in this setting, but I've seen you in some <laughs> moments where you are not so level-headed. Oh, and, and I, and I, I was going to say, I'm the first to say that, yeah, I sometimes get upset and, Sometimes I have to back and say, okay, here's what we've got to do. We've got to think about this a little bit more. But I do think the one thing that people need to realize when they go into critique, if you try to talk about everything at a critique all at once, you're never going to get anything accomplished. You've got to pick out specific things to discuss because you only get three, four, maybe five minutes to talk. And you got to, you got to deal with what you think was or was not taken care of. Uh, and Jeff, Jeff, there's something I, I really wanted to have people know that I've learned a lot from you as well is you may have the whole show planned when it comes to the effect category, but you don't teach the whole show in the beginning. You know, I know in where we teach together now, we have the show that we learn. And then every week we sort of unveil some more things for the kids to learn, even up through the week of championships. So it does two things. And, and again, I'm, I'm giving you credit for this because I learned this from you is not only do the judges and the audience see something new every week and that keeps them engaged and wondering what's going to happen next. And I'll bet you that helps your general effects score.
but at the same time, it keeps the kids engaged. So the show isn't the same for, for nine weeks in a row. It's constantly being improved and changing. And the fact that you always have these tricks up your sleeve, you're like, yep, they're not ready for it yet. But then when they're ready for it, you give it to them and it brings the show to a whole new level. Well, I also think from what Jim said that you glean a lot of information from the judges, but sometimes when you're in critique or you listen to tape, you're not getting it. And as a, as a, as a writer and as a teacher and as a judge, you got to go back and review your tapes and say, you know, I didn't look at it from that perspective. And at the moment I couldn't look at it from that perspective because I was too busy harping on one thing. And you go back and you learn and you say, maybe we should have tried this and, and you try it and you find out you get a lot, a lot more credit and, and I'll be the first and everybody knows this, who knows me that this is like a contradiction in statements, but you get more positive with honey than you do with vinegar. And, and, and Jim knows me well, and he knows that I can go and critique, critique like a bull in a China shop and sometimes not, but I've always told the judges that worked with any group that I've been involved with is, don't treat me with kid gloves because I'm not going to get better if I'm treated by kid gloves. The only reason the program that I've written for, taught for, have improved is because judges have been very clear, concise, and frank about what they like. And they didn't get caught up with worrying whether I would be offended in a critique. I, I think it's important that we realize that, as Kyle said and as Jim said, Judges are here to help your program improve. And you've got to be open-minded enough to realize that and try some of the things they say. Sometimes they won't work. Sometimes they will work. Or sometimes they will work three weeks or four weeks down the road. And you've always got to listen and you've always got to review those tapes and those sheets to say, why were they saying that? And it might click, or maybe another staff member might say it might click. But uh, um, one other very important thing, though, to understand is the judges are not the be all end all of information. We are also learning from you folks. It, it's very important for you to understand that. So you know, when Jeff talks about you know coming in and being what I, I consider assertive, not aggressive, and I respect that because Jeff is a really seasoned, very talented, you know, he's had many uh, incredible groups over the years. So when I listen to Jeff, I make sure that if there's something that he's saying that I can grow from, I have to listen to that. I can't put up a wall and say, you know, you have to do everything we're telling you. And we're not always perfect either. So we try to be as perfect as we can be, but we're not always perfect either. So we like to learn from you folks. I mean, there sometimes there may be a new uh, Kyle, you're the same way. You're very intelligent. I mean, when you come in, you're very prepared. We listen to what you're saying because you might be saying something to us that we've never thought of before, or we've never heard of before, and that we need to take the time to learn more about. You know, an example of that is maybe you've chosen a repertoire piece that is so, you know, has such a different type of structure to it and something that we're not used to. You know, we might have a different kind of reaction to that as an effect person then you can come in and talk to us and say, look, here's what the original intention of that was, and this is what you need to learn about that. And we're open to that. I mean, I want to find out every bit of information I can so that when I look at your show the next time, I understand what I'm watching. I mean, 
There are many times when I watch a show and I and I say, I just, I don't know what's happening here. I might feel and look okay, but I don't understand what the message is. So, you know, those are the kinds of places where we can either learn from you guys or you can learn from us about, you know, how do you make your message stronger? But, you know, Jeff, don't, don't ever feel like you're coming in and uh, strong arming us. It's, it, you're, you're always very assertive and you're protecting your program. And I, and we respect that, so. Well, thank you. I, I think that one thing that you just said is really important. Well, everything you said is really important, but what you just mentioned is, is it was important is that, you know, when you go in and a judge understand your program, sometimes a director or a staff solution is to write this document that's two pages long explaining what the show's all about. And my thing is that that's really nice because that makes you as the director or the staff feel good. But if you aren't showing that demonstratively through what you're doing, it doesn't matter what's on the sheet of paper. You and I experienced a group where they said one thing on their sheet of paper and then looked at the show and we came back and said afterwards, I don't get how it fits that. And we brought that up in critique and it took a while for them to figure it out, but they finally did figure it out that what they wanted it to look like and what they said it was going to look like and what the members of the group were doing were totally diverse to what was going on. So I, I, I don't think, I think writers need to, to make the judges understand better. Think about what is being seen rather than what they want to be seen. I, I think like Kyle, it's you, it's like when we're, we're doing a, a band and we hear uh, the Stan Kenton band, but Stan Kenton isn't playing that music on that stage right at that moment. We have to, re we don't want to hear what's in our head, but we want to see, hear what we see here on stage is being there. And I think that's something that's, as I get older and the director's we need to communicate that so that we have a better long communication and understanding. There was, yeah, a, thought, yeah. there was, a, there was a thought, I'm okay. sorry. There's a thought that just came to me, Jeff, um, that we, and this is going back in the conversation just a little bit, but when we talk about the teaching the kids to be dramatic, I, uh, my line with kids is always like, look, you're high school kids. Drama is all you do. Like, you know how to be dramatic, right? Sometimes just getting them to get what they do in their everyday life and trying to put that on the field in an appropriate way is like a way to get the barrier down to get them to actually do some acting. So I know that was kind of- That's how actors learn. I mean, they learn from life experience, so. Yeah, so- And we as teachers yeah. learn from those experiences and writers and just we learn, We've, uh, we do all those things. Jeff, you know, your thing about um, the pieces people provide about, you know, with the description of, I think that works really well for the highest level of competition. Right. And those at the very highest level of Drum Corps International or WGI, because those people are really at, the, at a place where they're coming up with such sophisticated concepts that you might need a little bit of explanation to kind of get, you know, into the moment. But when we're talking about, you know, lower, and I'm, I don't mean lower level from just the good or bad, lower level, less experienced, not as professional as these, you know, high-level drum and bugle horrors and WGI groups, putting a description out there then sets a set of expectations for the adjudicator. Now, the example that you gave, Jeff, you know, when we had the conversation with the group that gave us this 
um, preamble, they wanted us to talk about everything that was listed in that preamble, but we couldn't because it didn't exist in the performance. Mm -hmm. You don't want to set yourself up for failure by something like that out and then not delivering every element of that because we only can judge what we see on that particular at that particular moment. So just a, a caution about how, if you're going to do something like that, write it up in a way that might be a little bit more general, just to give sort of a feel of what the show is rather than trying to describe what every moment in the program is going to be, you know, um, that I think can set you up for some problems. And I think Kyle does this well, that during the course of the season, he invites people to come in, judges, other writers, to come in and view the program. And he talks with them about, did you get that idea? Did, did what we're trying to do come across to you? Because I think that that is an important thing. And, and to me, the most important performance of the year is the end of band for the parents. And what I try to do is I try to hide amongst the parents and just be as anonymous as possible and listen to their discussions. Because being parents, yes, they have the link with their child. Oh, Johnny or Susie is a great job. But then if they get a little deeper and you start listening to them talk about the show, you hear what they understand, but you hear what they don't understand. And if we can't get an effect response from the parents, well, then we're sure as heck not going to get an effect response from an adjudicator because the parents are the most bought-in group of people. And sometimes they have the most innocent yet succinct comments on how to improve a show. Jeff, will you tell us a little bit about the, the what you've done with parents in the past to try to plant them in the audience at shows, teaching them when to clap, teaching them how to react to help your general effect score? Well, I, I talk to parents about when the effect, the big effect moments are. So they understand when to clap because sometimes they'll come and watch rehearsal and they're quiet because they don't want to make any noise and disrupt things. And I try to explain to them that that's not the reality of performance. The reality of performance is to respond. And sometimes they're looking over at their child on stage left and there's this big moment occurring on stage left, uh, right. And I got to say to them, that's what you got to respond to. That's, that's the moment that's coming. And that I think you need to respond and you need to make sure that you respond to it. If they do it well, give them the credit they do. And, and I do, I do say to them, don't just sit in one place in a big clump because then everybody says, well, that's so-and-so's high school. Those parents are just responding to their high school. Because sometimes because of competition, Parents of other schools tend to sit on their hands quite often. And I'm sure you've seen it, Jim, with the years you did where you've, you've written for Portsmouth or you've written for Salem, and you see the Salem parents going crazy. Yeah, that's great. And the others are just sitting there just staring around. And one of the things I've always tried to do is to teach beyond my classroom, and that is to teach the audience that you have to respond to what the kids do by spreading my parents out. But in return, I always said to my parents, also, please respond to the other groups. Don't ever sit on your hands. Be responsive. Because the group that I used to teach years ago, we'd get, as Jim can attest, you'd get the main shows and there'd be our competitors. And we were in a little bit more harshly competitive scenario than we are in Maine. And um, we'd have parents that would just sit on their hands when my kids would come out on this field. And we were talking maybe 
5,000 people. And some parents in their groups would just collectively sit on their hands. But I told my parents, don't ever sit on your hands. I want you to clap for everybody and everything, every kid, because every kid out there is trying their hardest to be as productive, musical, visually concise, and emotionally demonstrative of what they're trying to do. And uh, Jeff, that's a really, really great point. I mean, you know, think though, if you've designed shows before and you've performed in front of a crowd, think back on the end of the performance and did how, do, how was the crowd reacting at the end of the performance? Was it the appreciative clap for a thank you for coming and we appreciate the fact that you did what you did? Or are they on their feet? You know, a crowd that's on their feet. Or, or the other thing is like, say you're in a show like Kyle brought up 25 bands. Well, if you're band one, two, three, or four, and there's nobody there, you're not getting much response. And, you know... If you're going to go to a show, go to the beginning of the show and stay through the whole show and let everybody enjoy it and give response to everybody. Well, let me ask you guys, because um, you guys work together as a team now. Um, I, I know in my past when working with the staff, um, when we were doing full performance runs at a rehearsal, we would talk as a staff about how we felt at the end of that. So, we, you know, if we're not reacting during performance, something is not right. So... You know, we, we're not, it doesn't just have to be the audience. I mean, the staff as well needs to feel something from the performers. And then you need to respond to the performers when you feel, when you have felt that. Mm -hmm. No, you either achieved it. This, remember that feeling. It's let that muscle memory kick in, you know, that sort of thing. So are, are, are you guys on the same page with that? Do you feel like? Oh, uh, I'm going to speak up first. I'm going to speak up first <laughs> because I think I'm the last one to respond because as the band director, who is, you know, even though I may not have the most experience, I'm the last line of defense. I'm the one who has to call the parent. I have to make sure that I'm quote unquote in charge all the time. I'm always waiting for what tragedy is about to happen. I'm not enjoying the moment at the time where I think a lot of the staff members will come off the field and they'll say, oh my gosh, this was amazing. That was amazing. I had chills. And I'm like, I didn't notice any of that. I was just happy that the electricity stayed plugged in and, you know, nobody fell in the wet mud and, and all that. So I think each staff probably has those members of people who feel it more and, and don't. I, I feel it more in rehearsals. I, mm -hmm. I have rehearsals where I'm not really worried about things, but in performance to me, some people afterwards will say, well, how do you think they do it? I'm like, I, I don't know. I've heard the show 6,000 times. It's to me, it's the same every time, even though it's not. Yeah, and, and thank you, Kyle. That's a really good point because I'm talking specifically about in rehearsal mode. Oh. How does the staff reactor in rehearsal mode? I think that's such an important thing for kids to you know, get a feeling from. And my position is different than Kyle's. When I'm in rehearsal, I'm in the analytical mode. I'm in, I'm in the, I'm not in the effect mode because I'm looking around trying to see, okay, that's not working right. Why is Why? it not working right? And how can I fix it to make it work right? And uh, when I get to shows, I'm very, I try to be as quiet as possible, but I'll clap. When, when I'm, pro, I'm supposed to clap and when I feel things are going well, but I won't crazy because I don't want audience members to look at me. I want the audience to pay attention to the young people on the field that are performing. And, and I watch, and I'm sure you've seen this, Jim, where you, you get some schools where the staff's up near the top, 
They strategically place themselves right in front of the box or right next to the box. And they're going crazy clapping and all this stuff. And it's like they're performing. I don't want to see them perform. I want to see what the kids do on the field, what they're, how they're performing and help them along the way. And then I always have the rule that after a performance, they ask me, how did you, how did we do? And I'd say, I'm not going to talk about it right now. And I'd prefer that you not talk about it till we get back together as a group. And then we talk about it and we can analyze the great things we did and the things we need improvement because each sequence is an improvement. And um, what about those staffs who say, well, when I'm screaming for my kids, that shows them that I'm supporting them and that helps relax them when they hear me scream from 10,000 feet away. Yeah, I, I, I've gotten that before uh, many times. And I that, listen, it, it's all well and good. Um, the thing that gets a little distorted, though, is when people react to a success that's happening in the group. But when we're looking at it from an adjudication perspective, it's only a moderate success. You know what I mean? So, for instance, um, I, I, and I hate to go back to Color Guard all the time, but Color Guard is a good example because they have, there's more opportunity for, you know, like major visual error with them. You have a group of rifles standing across the front of the field. The, the, they throw a toss, the tosses go up. It's disastrous. We think about it as an adjudicator from a technical perspective. This, the rotations are not straight. The pitch isn't very good. But every single one of them caught it. And the staff goes bananas. And then they come into the green. They're all excited because all their eight rifles all caught those rifles on that effect moment. But we didn't react to it. So you have to be able to analyze the entire moment. I mean, we, you know, we're looking at performance and part of performance is excellence and excellence in itself is an effect. So, you know, we, we have to be very cautious about how we react to achievement and the different levels of achievement and the staffs need to be able to understand that, you know, if you want the ultimate, you have to produce the ultimate, which means everything that that sheet lists has to be in order for you to get ultimate score. You know, you, it's you not just the finish, it's, it's everything that happens to make that finish you, good. You just mentioned something that sort of hit home for me. Like when we're teachers at, in marching band, as band directors or staff members, we know more than the kids. We're in, we know more than the parents. We're in a place where we know more than everybody else. Well, the minute we go and we're dealing with a judge, there's a good chance that for the first time in a year since you've been judged last, you haven't been in a room with somebody who knows more than you. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying every judge knows more than you about everything, but yeah. we sometimes forget, well, wait a minute, I thought it was perfect. And now you have to, as a teacher, realize, well, the judges was, they were looking at a higher level and they're trying to bring you to that higher level. Yeah. Well, you know, and, it, and this goes back to Kyle, to the discussion we were having about younger, newer staff members yeah. who, who have a different perception of what excellence is. You know, I, I was trained by, you know, with the Zingali mindset and worked with him for a number of years and learned what the definition of technique is. And so when you break something down second by second by second to make it perfect, and, but you don't understand that, you know, each one of those seconds builds to make a successful phrase. I understand that with a newer, a newer instructor. I mean, those people just have to be, you know, brought along and trained to understand how important the excellent piece, excellence piece of what we do is to the whole thing. You know, I mean, this is an activity about excellence before anything. 
Um, so we always have to keep that in mind when we think about how successful something may or may not be. So I can just draw two comments to, to what you said. Um, when I was band director, um, my staff and I would we'd talk before we go to shows and how would we respond. And I had, uh, we'll mention his name, but Jim knows him real well, lives in Florida now. And um, he said, he said to me, look me straight in the face. And the whole staff says, do you know why instructors go crazy at a show? And I said, well, I think so, but you tell me. He said, well, they go crazy because it's their insecurity as to whether the child is going to catch that piece of equipment. And that's why they do that rather than having the faith in the child and letting the child catch the equipment and not steal the moment from the child. Yeah. And I truly believe that. So my staff and I would talk when I was teaching all the time and talk about insecurity of staff, trust the children, have faith in the children. You're not at the show to perform. The children are there to perform. And then I'll give one example. I had a, uh, I had a really large guard, 46 people in guard. And I had a rifle line of 12. It was a real windy night, very windy night, very dangerous. And, um, so there's this toss. It was a six. And uh, my instructor said, now, don't be shocked when you see what happens in the show. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I said, don't be shocked. So all the rifles tossed. And then they went like this. And the rifle hit the ground. And the audience went crazy because yeah. my instructor felt that it was too dangerous for the kids to try to catch because the wind drift was going all over the place, 20 mile an hour wind. And he said, is it better that they get hurt and try to catch it or we make it into a brief comedic moment and allow everybody to walk away and have another show the next day and we don't have concussions. And I thought that was very insightful on his part that he analyzed the situation to decide what was the safest way for the children to function. And that was the same person who said, we're not here to perform. The kids are here to perform. We can have all the siskumba rah 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 before and after, but let the kids perform. Have 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 a sense of security that what you have taught the children will be produced on the field, and let them have the moment, and let the parents have the moment to clap for them instead of looking at these instructors around screaming and yelling and yelling names and stuff. So, uh, that's an now, bringing, bringing that all back to effect. You know, as a judge, when we're going to put that final, you know, pen to paper uh, in our recap on our commentary, we're taking into consideration everything that just happened within that, you know, that ecosystem that you created out there. The performers, first and foremost, the how did the crowd react? You know, everything. You have to take everything into consideration as part of your final um, result. So, yeah, you know, staff jumping up and down and all is one little, you know, piece of what's happening during the performance, but that certainly is not having an impact on what we're doing as we're evaluating. Right. We're looking at the entire ecosystem. So I had another question to, to throw in here too. The Jeff, when, when I would, when I was, you know, in the past, I would teach almost exclusively from the stands or from the box. And when you started working with us, you sort of insisted that you were on the field with the kids. And then now we have like zero time from the box. Like we just don't with our rehearsal space and all that, we just don't do that. 
So like, how do you, and I think that was a great move because being with the kids uh, feels like allows us to be more on the wavelength of where they are. How are they doing? What are they talking about? If they're talking like, what are, you know, we can feel the pulse of the band better and then we can help communicate to them better too. But how do you make sure that you're with the kids and teaching, but you also have a really good effect score if you're not standing back and watching from afar? When I stand back for me, when I stand back for afar, I've got to be at least 20 feet or more in the air and at least 20 yards, 25 yards. Away. If, if I can't get up there, then I'm not going to serve any purpose. I'm better off helping the kids, watching the kids, seeing what they're doing to make sure it's what I want up close. In many associations, they've taken away the uh, visual or music IA person down on the field. But I always believe that if it's not occurring down on the field, it's never going to occur from somebody looking down from the box. Mm. And when we get the opportunity to be up high, I go up high, but I'm sort of, when I'm with your group, I'm always looking that it's a teaching moment. I, I, I went with my other group when I was in Connecticut. We rehearsed six days a week. So um, I was up in the box at least three to four days a week. But when I was in the box, I was four stories up on a scaffolding looking down at my group. And that made it real easy. Or if I wasn't up there, one of my other staff members was up there on a walkie-talkie telling me what she or he was seeing to make it better. Um, you don't always get what you want. Uh, where we rehearse, I think, is wonderful. And we, we, but it's on a, a low level, so we make it work. And when we're on the field, I try to go up top and, and look there as much as possible, too. But uh, wouldn't you agree, Jim, it's dictated by... Yeah, it clearly has to do with logistics. I mean, if you have the ability to be up, um, you know, I I was blessed um, when I was doing marching band that we did have a facility where we could be up in a press box, um, but only during ensemble uh, rehearsal. I mean, we were doing you know any of any teaching or readjusting or fixing. Um, you know, we were down in the field like everybody else, even with the technicians. I, you know, my approach uh, and Jeff, you made an excellent point about making sure that the excellence is happening on the field. You can't, sometimes when you're up in the box, you get a little bit unfocused on what constitutes really excellent technical training. I like to do 360 degree cleaning. I don't, I don't do one dimensional cleaning to me doesn't work. Um, you have to clean from all three, you know, from a 360 degree perspective so that when you see it up above, that's when you see perfection. Otherwise, if you are only cleaning from a one-dimensional perspective, flat on from the front, you are probably going to miss some contouring. You're probably going to miss some spacing things um, that will have an impact when somebody's looking at it. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely um, benefits to doing both. But if you have the opportunity, make sure you spend enough time on the field for great training and enough time up above in an ensemble situation to make sure that the program is working the way you want it to work. And Kyle, if you'll notice, when we get to the season this year, a lot of times I stand in the right end zone or the left end zone or yeah. in the back and watch rehearsal from there because that's exactly what Jim's talking about. I, I can't hide, but I can see what's going on from all the different perspectives yeah. doing it that way. Um, standing right in front, that's nice. 
<laughs> but but if I've taught it right, up front's going to look fine. It's what's beyond that front row that's the problem, or what's what alignment is occurring horizontally and vertically from the rear of the sides to get it correct. Yeah, Jeff, that's a great point. And you, I, I remember um, when I finally went from paper and pen dots to actually using a computer to program the show. Um, one of the things that I did, if we were going to be in a venue where we weren't going to have any height, I would always, before rehearsal, I would look at the um, video and change the perspective of it um, from this van, you know, this angled vantage point to a more flatter vantage point. So that way I knew when I was looking at it at rehearsal, I could pinpoint things that I wanted to work on that night. So if you're working with um, any kind of software to program your show and you're in a venue where you're rehearsing that doesn't have height, that's a good way to approach how you're going to do a rehearsal. Yeah, and when I write the program I use, sometimes I'll write from the front, some I'll write from the 20 degree angle, sometimes I'll write from an end zone, and sometimes I'll write from the back so I can look up into the stands to see how it's perceived from there. And uh, the, the new software and uh, all its accompanying uh, things have, have made it so much easier to write paper. Like I said, what looked good on paper sometimes didn't translate, but with the new uh, programs you can be pretty assured what it's going to do if you teach it the way you put it on the paper yeah. jeff can you take a minute to talk uh this is not an ad but you know the last few years we've started using udb or ultimate drill book and i know a lot of groups do but there's also a lot of teachers probably listening to this who've never heard of ultimate drill book it's sort of changed how we teach drill and how quickly our kids can learn and adapt can you give us a little plug for udb yeah I, first of all I, to, to precede that i use pyware and um, Pyware, I think, has grown so much as a program for writing drill and everything. So Pyware linked up with UDB, and so you can have it on your cell phone. Uh, before that, we had uh, kids would do their own dot books by paper and keep them around their waists. Mm -hmm. Then we went to the UDB, where UDB provided us a dot book. But then we went to the phone, and where kids could see their paths, they could see exactly what count they crossed on a yard line. They could see where they had to do the change of direction. They could look at their next move in motion and see what they had to do, how to do it. They read the instructions and the instruction manual. And then they could watch the whole show with different perspectives. And they could also highlight themselves and watch themselves move through the show. And then, so what transpired from that was that at break time, we'd see kids go out on the field with their phone with the drill, with the music playing from the phone and marching the drill as a practice because a move they couldn't figure out. And I, I must say, I think UDB has increased our productivity of teaching drill by minimum 50%, maybe even greater, maybe even 75% because <clears throat> you're not spending as much time talking about how to do something because while the kids are standing there making sure their dots are right. They're checking to make sure they know where they're going next, how they're going, who's on their right, who's on their left, who's behind them, who's in front of them, rather than having to write that in the book like we used to have to do in drum corps, where we'd be writing all this information in the book and we'd be filling up an entire three by five card and just going through the spirals like crazy. And we I'll say, I'll, I'll say you, you make, when we make changes too, Right. Right. You haven't mentioned that you make a change as a drill writer. You update it. The kids click refresh and all the new dots and changes are right there. They don't have to write anything down. I mean, it's like an instant change. Well, and the best example of that was last year. We had, we had our first session 
And then from session one to session two, the staff said, well, couldn't we tweak this a little bit? And I said, well, let me go get my computer. And I tweaked it and I updated to UDB. And before we started rehearsals, we told all the kids, go to your app, update section one to section 1.2. <coughs> and the changes were all done. Yeah. It, it took That's 30 seconds. It's the phenomenal, you know, it's fantastic. It's a phenomenal program. And uh, it makes teaching so much easier. I was very concerned. You know, in fact, I didn't, I said no for a year or two because, you know, kids are on their phone all the time. And I was really concerned about that. You know, it, it to be quite honest, it really hasn't been a problem. Um, in my view, I think kids have done it very well and used it very well. The biggest issue we've had is a kids who don't have their phone charged. Right. So that's, that's an issue sometimes. And the other one is if a kid doesn't have the phone, but as we've noticed in our, in our, you know, thing, if they're, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, and they don't have a phone, odds are they're going to be just fine. Yeah. And I think the thing that we've also noticed is that the one thing you got to keep reminding them, particularly the guard students, is they need a fanny pack so they can put it in on their waist. But when they had dot books, we had the same thing. They either had a fanny pack or they had a string holding it around the waist while they're working. And that helped. But uh, Jim, I really thank you. You've, you've helped out tremendously. And uh, well, I couldn't, couldn't have done it with two, two better guys. And I appreciate you uh, asking me to join in today. It was, re it was really fun. And uh, I, you know, if, if anybody has questions, they're welcome to email them to us and we'll forward them to Jim and we'll, we can talk about it and see, see if we can get back to you with questions. Is that okay with you, Kyle? Absolutely. Anything else you have to say, Jim or Kyle? No, best of luck as you uh, get ready for the fall. Um, I hope you all, you know, have wonderful seasons and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some great shows this year. So, And we're looking forward to seeing you as well. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you have the time, we highly recommend the After Sectionals podcast for more great listening. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director. See you next week.